the reality is people come with very high expectations and I think they a lot of them expect more of a fine dining experience out of us and that's not who I am and that's not who I want to be and that's not what I want to deliver at all. It, it sort of comes as it is quite raw and I think the, the easiest way to describe it and the clearest way to paint a picture very quickly is to call it shitty barbecue. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Aussies love a barbie. It's the conviviality of that communal dining experience, of sharing a yarn while cracking open a few tinnies and charring a few snags on flames so high they threaten your eyebrows. Australian Dave Pint is an award-winning chef. His restaurant Burnt Ends in Singapore is ranked at number 59 in the world and number five in Asia. It is essentially a barbecue restaurant, but as he explains, this is no ordinary barbecue. So Dave, mate, how are you? We're, we're actually, uh, we're actually deboning pork till 1am last night. Really? Yeah. Tell, tell me about that. So we, we import up uh, Western Plains pork and we, we bring up whole carcass basically. And when it arrives up here, we, we put our teams together and break it all down for how we're going to use it like that week, the following week and, and the week forward. So um, we, we got a very big shipment or a bigger than normal shipment uh, this week because freight's just so expensive and if you don't sort of balance it out, the pork just becomes almost too expensive to use. So... And we, we, ended, we still ended up paying about $3.55 a kilo, which is a lot, just for freight. Right. That, that's the freight component. But it sounds like you're willing to pay for it because you're getting pork all the way from Australia to go to Singapore. It's very good pork. <laughs> <laughs> that's a concise answer, spot on. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's very good pork and uh, we just like using good pork. So, and it's fresh. It's not frozen, so if it's out of if it's out of Europe, it has to be frozen. If it's out of the states, it's it's generally frozen. But out of Australia, we're allowed to bring in fresh pork as well, and it's good quality. And it's you know we're we're breaking into it, and I was I was cutting off the hocks, off all of the the legs, and I was just like these are stunning, and like the marbling and the texture and the color was just like you know it gets you excited to use and cook with those products because. It looks so good. <laughs> so, I don't know. It may, yeah. And it's coming into like winter over there. So, it's cooling down. So, there's a lot more fat through the pork and it, it's good. Now, we're going to get to a lot of things in your career, but how does a kid from WA end up running a restaurant in the top 100 in the world? That's a very good question. <laughs> I don't know. A, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of hard work, I suppose, and a bit of luck. Do you want to just uh, tell us about those, your early childhood? You know, when, when did you first start getting interested in food? Uh, I think from pretty early on, I've always liked eating. So I think that's probably the best place to start. And I think the cooking, cooking only really started sort of after school finished because I was washing dishes. I would have been washing dishes from about 15 or 16 up at the local restaurant on weekends just earned a bit of extra cash and uh, and then finished school, decided not to go to university and uh, 
learned how to make wood-fired pizzas at the place where I was washing dishes, and they were sort of lucky enough to teach me. And then went through and like got offered an apprenticeship, and I was like, yeah, why not? And then went and staged at Tetsuya's in Sydney, and was like, this is pretty cool. How did you How did you feel walking into Tetsuya's for the first time to do that? Pretty nervous. I'd, look, to be honest, I don't think I really knew what I was in for. So I was a bit, uh, I'd say, green and, and didn't really know what where I was or what I was doing. You know, you don't know the enormity of working in a place like Tetsuya's at its peak until, I guess, you leave or you settle in. Because I just think, you know, the guys are so good, they're so talented, they're so driven. And you walk in there and you think you know what kitchens are like coming out of Perth and then you realise you've actually got no idea. You actually ended up going back to Perth after Tetsu's and working in a restaurant that was highly influential in Australia, Restaurant Amuse. Uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, your time there? Because um, just just after that, you went on a sort of global journey and we'll get to that. But what did you learn at Restaurant Amuse? Look, I think the... The best thing I learned at Restaurant Amuse was, number one, just like Hadley and Caroline just worked so hard, like all day, every day on their business and like absolutely threw everything into it. So what they put in is what they got out, I, I guess is a big part of what I saw. But the other thing is, uh, I think Hadley had uh, spent a lot of time at the Greenhouse, which is a heavily evolving menu and a lot of classic cooking. And so when when I went to a museum, I think the big thing that I learned at a museum was just actual fucking cooking. So, you know, it's different to places like Tetsuya where it's you, you've got your section, you've got your setup, you've got your routine, and you go in and you execute your job perfectly. The museum was you've got to go in there and actually cook. You've got to touch things, you've got to feel things, you've got to control the heat. You've got a few things on the go at one time and you've actually, you're actually cooking. It's like it, it was more cooking than manufacturing, let's say. And I think that's, that's what I really enjoyed. After your time there, you sort of went on a bit of a global journey and went to some pretty amazing restaurants, you know, Noma, Exabari, St. John. Uh, can you, is there some stories and some, um, interesting things you can tell us about your experiences at, the, at some of those restaurants? Uh, I, I guess so. I guess so. I think the, the, we'll start at Noma because that was the first pit stop. So I got to Noma and super excited, as you can imagine. And I got there. I got put on a station, the snack station, which is super heavy on prep and service. And then you know, someone rotated out of the system and I was sort of left running it. And I was just like, got to the end of two weeks and said to Sam Miller, who was the head chef at the time, I was like, look, mate, you know, I, I didn't really sign up to run a section here because I'm not learning anything. I'm just running a section, which is just running a section, right? And I went, this doesn't, doesn't really work for me while I'm here. It's kind of a bit of a waste of time considering it's on my own money. Um, how do I how do I get to see the kitchen and what's the time frame? And he sort of went, oh, this is, I think it was like three months and we'll, I'll make sure you go everywhere, but you've got to do another two weeks of, uh, 
of the station, the God mod, the snack station that you're on now. And so essentially I went from being about to quit after two weeks to staying for four months. So, and it was, it was just purely because, you know, if I, if he'd kept me on the station, I would have just like, it's a waste of time, you know, running a section, but getting the opportunity to go through the kitchen and, you know, see pastry, see a bit of hot section, see the prep kitchen upstairs and do a bit of everything. You just get to see and learn and absorb so much that it was a real, really fantastic experience. Are there any uh, dishes or techniques or ingredients that um, sort of sit with you after that period? I think the biggest thing that I actually took away from Noma was the energy energy and the drive and the intensity that they they push through that kitchen because they're you know they're uh it's a very scandinavian restaurant when i was there and so a lot of the the seasons and stuff actually didn't make any sense to me coming from perth where you're lucky to hit zero degrees once a year um but what i did really enjoy was the season seasonality of it because i sort of got to go through from winter season into into spring and to see the excitement of everyone especially like Renee and the guys that have been there for a while as you break into the new season was like yeah very exciting now you moved on to some restaurants that kind of uh, rely on fire for cookery they um, use sort of that nose to tail form of um, cookery as well with Exterbury and St. John, was that sort of the early seeds of kind of what you've ended up doing at Burnt Ends? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, when I was leaving Noma, I'm like, oh, what, 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 what the fuck am I going to do next? And I was speaking to one of the guys in the kitchen and he had, he had spent a bit of time at Echabar and he was like, oh, it's a pretty good barbecue restaurant. I was like, oh yeah, barbecue, eh? Let's go see what this is all about. And so we ended up, uh, or I ended up going out to applying to stage at Echabari and it's three months stage minimum. And I got out there and I was like, you know, let, let's see what this is all about. You know, it's a bit of barbecue in the back, back end of Spain in the middle of nowhere. But let's go check it out and see what it's all about. And I got there and was just blown away. And I think, you know, what, what I saw when I was there was that you can actually cook really good food over barbecue and i don't think i'd ever seen that before can you give us some examples of 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 what that means because i guess in australia we have a sense of what barbecue is and um what they what they're doing there and even in a restaurant in sydney called fire door um lennox hasty is also doing doing similar things with produce that people probably wouldn't realize you could do in that barbecue space yeah lennox is doing pretty amazing things right so um, yeah. Anyway, back to back to what we sort of saw at uh, Echabari. I think the the first thing you notice at Echabari is, you know, how local they are, and coming off the back of Noma, you sort of see it as well. But they they take local and say, well, this is our local produce. This is and this is the flavors that we get out of it, and this is how we like to eat it. And he just he gets the the best of the best product. And he'd, by the top, I think when I was there, he'd already been going maybe 15 years at, at Echabari. And uh, so we got up there and um, 
just the way he looks after it. So the produce that he gets is the best of the best. And then he had, in let's just take the fish room for instance, he had two big saltwater tanks and he kept all his live seafood in there. So the lobsters, the crabs, the oysters, uh, the clams, uh, the, the eel, anything that was live, he would keep in there. And every week there'd be a, one of the trucks would come past and he, he would pick up basically like maybe six jerry cans of salt water from deep sea. And so these fishermen would, these fishermen would in the middle of the ocean pick out like six jerry cans worth of uh, salt water for him. And you'd use that to top up his tanks. Wow. That's attention to detail. Yeah. It's just super, you know, it's like, how does he get the best salt water? He asks his fisherman where he catches his fish to come collect it for him. <laughs> like, can you imagine the guy, like, you tell your fisherman, oh, mate, can you just get me some salt water for me? Like, when you're out, <laughs> when you're out real deep, they just look at you like a nutter, right? And so these are, <laughs> like, some beautiful relationships that he sort of built over time, which are very much a time and a friendship thing with your, with your suppliers. Um which was pretty beautiful to see. Okay, so speaking of that connection with producers, you then did some time at St. John with the legend Fergus Henderson, you know, doing nose to tail, eating cookery. Can you tell us about your time there and, and what you learned? Yeah, look, I think um, the, the culture that Fergus has sort of built into his restaurants is phenomenal and the, the respect and the love that they have, they all, like the whole team's, show for, for produce and for cooking is second to none. I, I would say that the service is still pretty uh, uh, brisk and uh, English. <laughs> it's very, uh, yeah, if you, if you want to eat here, you'll like it, fine. If you don't, we don't really care either. Yeah, that's quite nice though too, isn't it? It, it is nice. It's kind of like this is a place to eat and drink and if you're not into it, fuck off um <laughs> which was kind of cool but the, the the kitchen was you know the kitchen that they ran at bread and wine was really fun really passionate very thoughtful and actually very caring to to the workers and and their hours and their lives which i thought it was the first like you go f from somewhere like noma which is you know we were doing what 8 a.m till 1 8 1 or 2 a.m every like five to six days a week to a place like St. John Bread and Wine where you do an eight-hour shift and that's what you do. And you go in there and you've got all your energy and you can love and care about it and be very passionate about it but then also go back to like a lot of the people there had families and a lot of them, you know, had other interests and stuff like that and they could therefore manage everything really well, which was pretty incredible to see, um, which is very cool. Do you have any stories of, of your time uh, cooking there or any sort of events that you did? Uh, um, I think my time, when I was there, I think the big, the big things that sort of happened apart from, you know, learning, learning a lot about nose to tail but also, again, proper, like proper cooking um, was that there was a hu the huge pop-up movement was going full steam at, in in East London, 
And so that you had the Young Turks down there and, you know, there was pop-ups like the Clove Club started out of that as well. You had the Loft Project from Nuno Mendes and there's just so much going on there that it was just a super exciting time to be there and a lot of opportunity to cook at different events, cook in different circumstances, cook with different products, cook with different people. And it was like a nonstop sort of food festival that was going on while we were there. So it was, it was a very exciting time to be there. Um, but the, the I think the bread and wine kitchen, you know, you've got stuff like the trotter mix, which is just cooked down pork trotters, cooked down to a jelly that you put through a lot of their sauces and you, you're making your own terrines. You're making faggot mixes. You fall in love with uh, bacon sandwiches again. What What do you mean again? Oh, uh, look, I think you sort of you, you have your bacon sandwiches when you're a kid, and they're really good. And then you sort of grow up, and you're like, you start exploring cafe culture and whatever else. And then you eat a St. John bacon sandwich, and you're just like, holy fuck, that's good. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Yeah. It, it it like it's just it's one of those magic sandwiches. Like he's got the the white bread down pat, and you know they liberally butter it, and then they toast it on the char grill, and you've got a generous amount of bacon on there, and then you've got the the, the homemade ketchup, and you know the, just the ratios and the the products that they they have in there are just you know it just makes the sandwich. It's not just a another bait like shitty bacon sandwich with wonder white and crappy supermarket bacon that you had as a kid. Right. And I think, yeah, so you fall, fall back in love with those things. And then you have, then you're making blood sausages, which, you know, I don't think I'd ever made, uh, in Australia from scratch. And then, you know, you go there and, you know, you're eating it for breakfast with a big duck egg. And it's just like, you know, that, that, there's they're pulling out stuff that comes across as shit that you'd never ever want to eat and they just make it so delicious and i think whenever i look at look back at my time at bread and wine and and with fergus it's i don't think of him as nose to tail cooking i just think it think of it as bloody delicious cooking and and he just makes things taste so nice. And I think if you if you speak to him, it's not so much about using every part. It's just he knows how to make every part delicious, and that's that's the trick to it. What 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 are some of the tricks or tips to get the best out of a whole beast? Uh, I think break it breaking it down to to the individual components and and looking at the individual components whether it's going to be the brains or the blood or the or the bellies to cure or you've got legs what are you going to do with them and and figuring out what they taste like and then how you should cook them and i think that's like maybe it's just got this amazing knack for it which he obviously does um but he just knows how to make it all taste delicious. And so when you, when he cooks it and when he teaches you how to cook things and when he talks about them, you just kind of go, yeah, that makes sense. And then you eat it and you go, yeah, that's delicious. And I think the, the biggest takeaway from St. John is just everything's delicious. Like it really is delicious. That period of your life led to a time 
uh, where you got involved with the Loft Project in London, and you also launched the the Long Table as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what that what they were? So the Loft Project was a, a I guess a pop up series uh, from Nuno Mendes that he launched out of the apartment that he was living in. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and so he would um, he would invite guest chefs uh, from sort of around Europe, I'd say mainly. And they'd come and cook for a weekend, and he he had a big long ta- uh, a big table in his in his living room, I suppose, for about twenty people. And you know there would be a host, a guest chef, and maybe their assistant, and and you that basically helped pull it all together. And you'd put on dinner for twenty people for two two nights, and it was just this incredible. Like I think the thing about Nuno is it's just so. He's so creative and got so much energy. And so when the guest chefs come, that's the energy and that's the creativity that was born out of it. And just, you know, being able to do that for a short short period of time, the amount of things you see, the techniques you see, the, the people that you meet were just insane. And so then you launched a sort of a weekly um, Friday night sort of market with the long table. Um, what... What happened with that? Can you give us a paint a picture of uh, the that sort of event that you created for Londoners? Well, so again, that was I sort of came in under Nuno Mendes on this project, and it was basically he wanted to create a, a night market, and we found this space, and we had this like the at the back of a big building, and they had a team of staff looking after things to do uh, exciting projects. And it was just about bringing the community together, bringing a whole bunch of different vendor, vendors together, creating a really good atmosphere and having a good time. And, you know, it was a beautiful space. A lot of people putting in a lot of hard work and some incredible talent cooking. And I think, yeah, it was just, I mean, the, the response, we, we sort of estimated, I think when we were looking at it, the guys, the pessimists were saying, oh, look, we'll do two to 300 people. The optimists were saying, maybe we can hit 1,500 to 2,000 people. And then, you know, it's coming into the middle of winter. It's There's snow coming down and we had a queue right around the block. And it's just, you, you know, people just love food and they wanted to have it in a really cool atmosphere we had DJs, we had guys doing drinks, and it was very community. And I think that's – everyone was able to enjoy it because it was community. The, the stallholders felt like they had a place and they had their say and they weren't being taken the piss out of with fees and no one was trying to rob them. And, you know, I think that really resounded – with not only the stallholders and the vendors, but also with the, the people that wanted to come and see them because everyone was getting what they should have out of it and had a really fucking good time. And it was a good time. A lot of hard work, but a, a really good time. Now, that led to sort of an interesting phase in your life which um, resulted in burnt ends. And, and I'm not sure if a lot of people know, but that kind of started in London and then ended up in Singapore in a roundabout way. Um, can you tell us how that it all came together? Okay, so I, I'd been, I think I'd been looking for a space for probably six months now to do something because I was doing, when the Young Turks and the Clove Club guys would, would do pop-ups, uh, 
they'd have a barbecue section and naturally I got I got given the barbecue section and I just started really, really, really enjoying it, obviously. And so I was looking for a space to build build like a barbecue sort of pop-up restaurant and see how it goes. And Nuno introduced me to um, one of his mates, Ian, who had Clemson and Sons Roastery at the back of London Fields. And he was like, oh, yeah, look, we'd, we want to do a barbecue, like a barbecue restaurant or barbecue pop-up over summer. Nuno said, you're the guy to talk to. What do you reckon? I was like, yeah. And, I, you know, when you walk into this space, you're, you're literally under a railway arch, uh, a couple of doors down from uh, where the train station is at London Fields, and you're right next to a scrapyard, like literally next door to a scrapyard. But it was this amazing open courtyard and it just looked absolutely stunning. And so we got talking and it was like, yep, this sounds really good. Uh, the space is beautiful. Let, let's do it. And he was like, you know, I can imagine his mind ticking over and going, oh, we're going we're gonna to put a couple of gas barbecues here. We'll put a bench here and a fridge here and we're away. <laughs> and I'm like, I think maybe a week later I came to him and was like, oh, uh, these, this is my design. This is what I'm going to build. What do you reckon? He was like, oh, it's pretty big, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, but it needs to be. He's like, okay, um, how much is it going to cost? I was like, I'll, 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 pay, I'll pay for the ovens and the grills. And, you know, we came up with our arrangement and, uh, yeah, we, we set to work. So I had a mate of mine who was – uh, doing pizzas, home home slice pizza, out of the van, and he was a builder, and he built his wood fired uh, pizza oven, and so I tapped into a bit of his knowledge and and did a lot of research behind what I wanted to do, and we ended up building what what we see now as the 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 burn ends ovens. So, and they weigh we didn't realize, but they weigh just over four tons because you can't pick them up with a forklift, which we found out. <laughs> so I was like, we we got the we got the steel steel base in place and we put it we started building it up. Then just I think before we started, I was like, do you reckon we can just move this to the other side? And we literally got a forklift from from the scrapyard and they they couldn't pick it up. So so that's how we know it, it weighs about four tons. <laughs> <laughs> now you you were serving everything from you know scallops to suckling pig and you know that you're doing like huge numbers like what was the scale of the success of that? Look, we I mean it's a it was a huge space and you know we we had the two ovens and the three grills and I think it started with two of us me and a guy called Ben Sinfield who's actually now in Sydney. Yeah, he's now in Sydney doing a pop like a Vietnamese pop up with his girlfriend. So he was at St. John Bread and Wine. I used to work with him and he came and did the first one and we just got absolutely hammered, absolutely hammered. And then we we went from the, the opening party to doing on Thursday nights, we'd do like a, a, a pot, like a proper five course sort of pop-up dinner off the grills, which was a lot of fun. And then Friday then Saturday from 12 o'clock till 11 o'clock and then Sunday from 12 o'clock till maybe a little bit earlier, 10.30, we'd finish. And by the end of it, we had 
six people in the kitchen and we literally wouldn't stop cooking from 12 o'clock all the way through till 11 o'clock at night, like literally no break and no non-stop. And it would be like the queue would go and people would order and then we'd cut the queue off because we couldn't do anything. And especially, especially when we got a turbo order, cause I, I absolutely love cooking turbot. Like it's like my favorite thing in the world to cook. And so we'd get it. It's a, pretty good to eat as well. It, yeah, exactly. I think this goes back to my love of eating. I love eating it. So it, it was actually the one dish at Echibari. Every single time it went out, I'd look at it and go, fuck, I'd love to eat it. It was the only, it was probably the only dish. You know how you've got like, you know, when you work in a restaurant, you see so many of every dish go out and you're just like, oh yeah, it's a nice dish. Yep. Another one, another one, another one. No, no shit. Every time a turbot went out, I was just like, fuck, I'd love to eat that. It's just, it's yeah, one of those things. And so we would stop, literally, I'd stop the cooking of everything in the kitchen while we were cooking a turbot. <laughs> just to make, just to make sure we did it well. So, and I think the, the, the biggest one that we cooked was five and a half kilos. Wow. So we, we, we cooked that whole. What's that in scale compared to the the pigs that you're getting in? Uh, in scale, so the pigs, the pigs that we that we were breaking down now were are about seventy kilos. Wow! So the pigs are a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Can you tell us about um, how on earth the Singapore burnt and started off the back of that, and just a bit about what you're doing there and. Um, and how I guess the sum of all those parts of your past has created, you know, this restaurant that's in the top hundred in the world. Okay. Um, so we got to we got to winter uh, in London, and obviously it gets probably a bit too cold to be cooking outside because you sort of go from jumper or no no jumper while you're cooking to having to put a jumper on. So we closed down over winter, um, and me and my now wife went traveling to South America and we got probably halfway through our trip and I think we were in northern Peru at the time and got a phone call uh, from Andre and he was like, oh, me and my partners are thinking of opening a barbecue restaurant in, in Singapore. What do you, we, we got told to speak to you about it. And so I was like, yeah. I mean, we were looking for a per- more permanent home for, for burn ends after the, the summer. And we were traveling and we were like, yeah, you know, why not? And so we, we flew out flew out to Singapore from, from Lima and we had a look at the site, met Peng, met uh, Andre, met Jeff, one of the other partners, and was like, I mean, yeah, this sounds pretty good. The deal sounds pretty fair. Uh, let's go, when we go back, we'll nut out some of the details. And I think four weeks later, and I think we took a 36 hour bus trip to get to the airport on time from wherever we were, um, and flew over and opened up Burnham, Singapore. How would you describe what the restaurant is delivering and your style of cookery? Uh, I think the, the most common way I sort of 
describe it to people is a shitty barbecue in Chinatown, Singapore. <laughs> that, that's, that's the easiest description. Is that so that their expectations are uh, lifted when they walk in the door? No, because I think um, I, I think the, the the reality is people come with very high expectations, and I think they a lot of them expect more of a fine dining experience out of us, and that's not who I am, and that's not who I want to be, and that's not what I want to deliver at all. Um, so I think I, I think it is what it is. It's like we don't plate things up pretty. We don't have fancy plates. Uh, we don't have white tablecloths. We don't have nice music. We don't, you know, it's not, nothing's nice about what we do. And I think when you think about a Michelin star, when you think about 50 best and whatever, you think your, your natural tendency is to be like, oh, fine dining or, you know, nice plates, nice ambience nice chairs, nice table settings, nice this, nice that. And that's just not what we do. Like you won't see flowers. You won't see tweezer plating, you know, it, it sort of comes as it is quite raw. And I think the, the easiest way to describe it and the clearest way to paint a picture very quickly is to call it shitty barbecue. Can you give us an idea of some of the dishes to sort of describe your food in a way and, and sort of, what you how you're cooking over the flames there uh yeah so i mean the, the thing about i guess what we do is it's not it's not singular so we've got the 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 two the the dual cavity ovens and we use them very differently so we've got the hot cavity where we where, which runs at about 750 celsius and we do uh a lot of a la minute super fast cooking and then we've got the slow cavity, uh, which is the oven from the night before, where we do a lot of our slow roasting and baking. So we bake our breads in the morning and then the suckling pig might go in or a short loin might go in or a strip loin, some beef ribs, pork ribs, lamb ribs, uh, any game birds, we'll, we'll sort of put them in the slow and gentle oven that's got no flame in it. Um, and then we've got the elevation grills. So I... Th- we, we don't, we just grill and cook on fire. And we've, we've got, with, with our setup, we've got the ability to utilize a lot of different techniques and a lot of different styles, which helps us keep it very interesting. So I think, I, I don't know, I think it's hard to narrow down on one technique or one style that we cook in because everything's got its place and you know some of it helps to alleviate our service time some of it we just like this is awesome let's just do this and having this variety allows us to keep evolving and keep reimagining constantly earlier you were saying about um the pigs that you get from australia from western plains pork and you know that they're really good pigs and uh is you know quality quality produce at the core of what you do? I mean, is that where you start? Yes. Yeah. Look, I think from from where I stand, if you don't have a good product to start with, how are you going to make it good? But a good product 
doesn't necessarily mean the most expensive product or the most common product. So you've got the stuff like uh, monkfish livers. You've got stuff like uh, pork shoulders, which are typically not the best cut. Um, you've got kingfish collars or kingfish wings. You've got livers. Um, you've got a, a basic leek, which is one of our favourite dishes of all time. Um, or you've got uh, a good milk base to make ice cream. So it's not necessarily about the most expensive or the fanciest product, but it's just about having a good quality, tasty product. And I think that's what you get out of uh, Fergus. What did it take for you to stand out in Singapore? Uh, I think just what, what we do and our setup is extremely different to anything and i you know the flavor the flavor combinations that we've put together may be very familiar but they haven't been they're just very unique to to the way we cook with fire and grills and alamanute and produce driven and i think having that combination is is something that you don't necessarily see every day when we started talking uh, you'd sort of expressed about sort of working all night, breaking down the pigs that you've just got in. And I wondered if you could, um, can you run through some of the dishes and the way that you're going to use them and maybe the, some tips on the best way to cook a, a couple of cuts? We've obviously got the, the suckling pig, which we absolutely love doing. And this is a super easy one. We dry it. We, we, we try, oh, actually I'll tell you about the, the king crab stuffed suckling pig, which is a little bit more interesting, a little bit more fun. So basically, we get a we get a suckling pig, we debone it, uh, we lay it with uh, our house made bacon, which we take from the bellies of the pigs, and then we make a very basic pork sausage, like a, a breakfast style pork sausage with sort of your nutmeg and, and clove and a bit of garlic. Um, and then we do a king crab stuffing. So we've used what three 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 bits of pork already with that um, for that one thing. And then we make a king crab bread stuffing, and then whole bits of king crab. And then we basically roll it around, tie it up, dry it overnight, and then slow roast it. And then with the the bones that we took out, we we make a stock. And that helps make the base of the the sauce when the suckling pig comes out, and that's one of our that's one of our like our favourite things to do because I, I do like the large format stuff uh, very much. It's um, it's made me incredibly hungry. <laughs> it's actually made me hungry as well. I'm like, it, it's one of those things that sometimes we will cook it for a staff party or or our Christmas lunches because it's you know it's a bit of it's it's a bit of work, but it's a it tastes pretty good once once you get to the end of it. Um, and then I was just going to talk about uh, some of the other, the slow roast. So we use the pork shoulder. So we do a 10-hour pulled pork. So we take the shoulders straight off. Uh, we cut the necks out and we'll either use the necks in sausages or we'll, we've been doing a um, achiote and pineapple rubbed 
salt bait pork neck and then serve it with like a pineapple salsa and uh, house-made tortillas and stuff. And basically at the table, you can crack the the salt bake open, open up the banana leaves and you just get this unctuous pork neck and just pull it apart and make tacos with it. Um, or we make sausages. Yeah, and that's, that's actually really quick. So once you salt bake it, the beauty about salt baking is we, we put it in our... In, in front of the hot fire first and we get it colored like blackened almost on the outside of the salt and that just brings the temperature up super quick inside and then we just pop it in our slow oven for about an hour and a half and it's done and so it's like you've got a pork neck like a super tender pork neck in an hour and a half and it's because you you're essentially pressure cooking this pork neck in salt which is in which is pretty good now this podcast series is called the crackling, and we've got we've got to explore that because everyone wants to know how to do good crackling. What what is what is your secret tips for good crackling? A little bit of dry, so you got to dry out the skin a little bit. Some people use salt, but I find that just brings a lot of moisture into your into your crackling. We just dry it, and then it's about it's actually about how you break down the skin. And then the temperature and the heat that you crisp it up in. So usually out the technique we'll use at burn ends to get a really good crackling is we'll put we'll dry it dry it overnight, roast it in our cold oven at about uh, 200, 210 degrees Celsius. But you've got to remember this isn't a normal 210 degrees Celsius. It's probably a lot lower and a lot softer uh, heat than what you'd find in a typical oven or even a baking oven. It's a bit softer than that. And then we'll pull out the product and we'll rest it and then we'll flash it in front of the fire at the right temperature. And don't ask me what the right temperature is because I've got no idea. <laughs> you just... You kind of just figure these things out. It's if it doesn't crackle, it's not hot enough. If it burns, it's too hot. Yeah. So you got to you, you you got to cook. You you've got to cook. Um, and you wait till it just pops up, and it just goes super crispy and delicious. And we do we do our our porchettas like that as well when we do them, because sometimes we we like with the fresh pigs we'll make porchetta one night just because why not? <laughs> why not indeed. Mate, really appreciate you giving us uh, time. I know you're a pretty busy man over there. Um, great chat and incredible uh, detail on uh, your, your history and also um, some incredible pork tips too, which has made me incredibly hungry. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank, thanks again and um, we'll talk soon. Excellent. And thanks for having me. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.